Welcome to another episode of The Carpenter Shop, a limited edition podcast presented by War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. Once a month, we take a deep dive into director John Carpenter's colossal canon. Sometimes we discuss a film we already know and love. And other times we discover a gem for the very first time. Jake, what's on the docket today? We've got a review of John Carpenter's classic dystopian shoot-em-up starring Kurt Russell, Escape from New York, and a few words about its sillier sequel, Escape from L.A. Plus, we've both got something you should definitely check out in really rad recommendations. But first... Hey, Jake. Hey, Chris. It's time for the John Carpenter Newswire. Oh, man, that's awesome. Anything new? A couple new things. Um, first up, a couple links that I, uh, I'm i going to put out on in the show notes for the episode. Don't have time to get into them right now, but one of them, uh, it's a Business Insider article uh, about kind of Danny McBride talking about the new Halloween movie. Some some cool insight there. He talks about you know working with Carpenter and, and also sort of how the uh, the film's coming along. And then also a article titled Halloween 2018 could kill Michael Myers for good. This is a screen rant article kind of, uh, theorizing on how this could play out with everyone coming back, including John Carpenter. Um, you know, basically theorizing on, is this going, are they going to kill him off? That sort of thing. Uh, which is also like a, a great, exciting prospect considering all of the, uh, weirdo iterations and the splintered uh, timeline that that the Michael Myers story has. Uh, but what I really want to talk about today is this Rotten Tomatoes article called We Killed John Carpenter on Twitter and he was pissed, but we're cool now. Did you see this article? Yeah, I, I did. And that's in reference to uh, Rotten Tomatoes tweeting out that John Carpenter had died on his birthday. And, uh, they said, yeah. they said, had John Carpenter, if John Carpenter was alive, he would be 70 years old today. And and, and I, I liked his response, which was, uh, I assume they had me confused with Wes Craven. Yeah. In, in the interview, he basically, and he, he calls him out and says, like, did you think that? And, and the, uh, the, the interviewer kind of sidesteps the, the question. But no, I, I kind of assume that's, that's got to be what they were. There. I mean, or George A. Romero, who had just passed. Um, yeah. But Craven seems closer uh, but it, it was a pretty good interview. I've I've gotten to the point now where whenever I read John Carpenter interviews, I read them in his voice, kind of like uh, <laughs> anytime you read something that says "Good news, good news, everyone." Professor Farnsworth, exactly. I've invented a machine that makes you hear this in my voice. But some some nice insights from uh, from this interview. Uh, one, I think this came from, from this. This could have been the Danny McBride piece, actually. But Nick Castle is back. He is officially back to play Michael Myers in Halloween. Now, Nick Castle, um, we've talked about a lot on on the Carpenter Shop so far. He was the beach ball alien in Dark Star. He was, of course, the original Michael Myers. He actually co-wrote Escape from New York, which we're going to talk about today. Um, has a little uh, cameo as well. And, of course, he wrote Hook for Steven Spielberg and directed Major Pain. Oh, man. Is our, our next podcast going to be Storming the Castle, where we review the works of Nick Castle? <laughs> <laughs> when's the last time you saw dennis the menace chris he did dennis the menace i don't think i realized this <laughs> yeah he he did he directed it i think john hughes wrote it so it's got to be the worst thing from both men um to, to answer your question it's probably been 20 years i've i've seen it but not since i was a child maybe we don't do storm in the castle 
We'll we'll see. We'll see what sort of mindset we're in when we get to the end of the carpenter shop. Um, another piece. So that's that's exciting. I'm the more I read about this new Halloween film, the more I'm excited about it. Um, so you know, John Carpenter, he's approved the script. He's given it his blessing. He's executive producer on it. He said he might write the music. Everyone seems to be dancing around it. Danny McBride dances around a little bit. Uh, in 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 that piece, he dances around it a little bit here in this Rotten Tomatoes interview. But he basically says like. No one. I haven't signed on the dotted line, but uh, I will do it if they want me to do it. No, what he said is if they don't f me over, I'm doing it. Like it sounds like they have a verbal agreement, but he's worked in Hollywood long enough to know nothing's certain. Well, that's totally like cynical or or pragmatic, John Carpenter for you. Um, but the thing that I find exciting is you know Carpenter always works with uh, kind of alongside composers. Um, his plan for this one, if he does it, is to actually work with his son, Cody Carpenter, and his godson, uh, Daniel Davies, who is actually the son of the Kinks guitarist, Dave Davies, who have been working with him on The Lost Themes, uh, both of those albums and the anthology album that just came out last year. Um, that gets me really excited because I love The Lost Themes stuff. And yeah, so but- if if they're going to take halloween in that direction i'm all for it yeah but what if for the sequel to halloween he adds a bunch of new metal crunchy guitar <laughs> you're getting way ahead of yourself oh, i'm sorry i'm sorry more on that later more on that later <sighs> oh gosh uh but no this is this is exciting stuff uh a, a, another thing just another quick piece i mean i'll link to this article as well in the show notes uh you should definitely go read the whole thing it's it's it is a fun read uh but uh, the, the interviewer brings up comparisons or, or mentions, you know, it seems like there's sort of this, these new composers now who are sort of making homage to, to Carpenter's work and basically ask him how he feels about it. And I loved Carpenter's answer. Like he, he straight up brings up stranger things and basically says, you know, I've heard it and I don't think it sounds like me. So I don't get it. Uh, which is a perfect John Carpenter answer. Like sort of, I I'm sure his perspective is like, well, they don't approach it the way that I, I approached it. There are more musicians than, than he is. And he would even, you know, he would even say that. Uh, but he, you know, he basically says, which, I mean, I think it's very clear that, uh, because stranger things is nothing, if not just wearing its nostalgia on its sleeve, it's very clearly trying to do a Carpenter thing, but I love that he ju- he's just like, ah, oh, no, they're not doing what I would do, so it's not me. We're like, oh, it's got some some synthy keyboards in it. Must be John Carpenter, and, and like he's thinking about it, like what he would choose to do and wouldn't choose to do. I think I, that's fascinating to him. It doesn't even sound like him. Well, and the thing is, is that it probably sounds to him more composed than something he would do because he mm-hmm. does a lot of stuff. You know, he, a lot of the time he just goes and two pictures starts playing. He doesn't even he doesn't write anything out. He just plays what he feels and then goes from there. Right. And I also found it interesting that he said he wouldn't be able to score Halloween until he saw a cut of it. Yeah. Which tells a lot to me about how he approaches it, which is like, I didn't write a cool theme. I watched it and and made the thing that needs to go with it, which tells me he's good at scoring movies, which I'm not surprised at at all, considering his scores are always fantastic. You know, it's very clear that he has total faith in David Gordon Green to do his thing, and he's going to let him make his movie. He's there for input whenever asked, but he's not trying to be a tyrant to say, oh, well, this is my, you know, really my baby and the thing that I became known for. Mm-hmm. And let me, you know, he's he's around if, if needed, but he's going to let David Gordon Green do his thing. And then once he does that, then he will react to it with his score, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And, and it also has to be cool 
for David Gordon Green and be like, oh, he's just going to let me do it. I mean, but John Carpenter, honestly, you look at his entire filmography, his entire career, he's nothing if not a collaborator. He's constantly collaborating with writers, with composers, with actors who he, you know, deals with, works with a time and time and time again, producers. So like, it just seems like the nature of the way that he likes to work. There is one thing I find interesting about this Halloween movie. Uh, and the the original Halloween movie, the first Halloween movie was the only Halloween movie where they made it and didn't know what the score was going to sound like. Like everybody on set was just acting in a movie where now yeah. when they make this one, everybody on set is going to be hearing the classic theme in their head while they're, you know, while Nick Castle is walking around following them or whatever it is that he's going to be doing. They're going to hear that score. That's just fascinating to me that. When it was made, those people were walking around and they didn't hear the crazy, creepy score that we all instantly associate with the movie. Yeah. But I mean, I'm that's one of the things I'm excited about is to see how he, you know, can change it, rejuvenate it. I mean, I've already said, I don't know if after the many recommendations you've gotten to listen to the Halloween three soundtrack. If you haven't, you really need to. Um, but he kind of took the bones of what we know of Halloween and expanded it to something different. And I, that's, that's the other thing that excites me is, is to see what he does with his son, Cody and with, uh, and, and with, uh, Daniel Davies to see what they come up with. They came up with new metal. <laughs> it's not going to be new metal. I promise you. You don't know that. New metal. We, we will get to the new metal in a bit, but before that, we need to talk about Escape from New York. Let's do that right now. The once great city of New York becomes the one maximum security prison for the entire country. A 50-foot containment wall is erected along the New Jersey shoreline, across the Harlem River, and down along the Brooklyn shoreline. It completely surrounds Manhattan Island. All bridges and waterways are mined. The United States police force, like an army, is encamped around the island. There are no guards inside the prison, only prisoners and the worlds they have made. The rules are simple. Once you go in, you don't come out. So, Jake, sometimes we're discussing a film that we haven't seen before, a war crime force. Sometimes we're discussing one that we already know and love. Uh, in this episode, we actually have both. We've got Escape from New York, which we both already loved coming mm-hmm. into it. And then we've got Escape from L.A., which... Uh, we had never seen before, and uh, we, we're we going to put that on the shelf. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, let's start with Escape from New York, though. The sort of really granddaddy of the Carpenter 80s run, which was a great run. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't even know if it needs an introduction. I'll go through one real quick just for anyone uh, who either hasn't seen it or hasn't seen it in a while. Uh, Air Force One is hijacked by the soldiers of the Nationalist Liberation Front of America. Uh, they kidnap the president, take him to the maximum security prison of the island of New York, and the American war hero Snake Plissken is given 24 hours to rescue him or die. That's did I leave anything out? That's about it. It's pretty bare bones. Yeah. And and it and it doesn't need more than that. That's that's the beautiful thing about it. It's 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 a setup and then just a a a wall-to-wall action movie with a with a really cool environment in my opinion. This is so we've we've talked about on as we've been especially as we've been progressing chronologically through stuff sort of how Carpenter is progressing as as a director. And I think 
you know, we, we were both pretty impressed with where he was with the fog coming off of, you know, coming off of Halloween into the fog. It felt like a big step up. This feels like even bigger, like even, I mean, this feels like John Carpenter has arrived. Yes. Uh, he can do, he can do absolutely anything or in maybe coming off the fog, it felt like he could do absolutely anything. And this proves that he can. Yeah. I, I almost wonder what somebody had thought who had, you know, they had watched dark star and assault on precinct 13, Halloween, the fog. Okay. Those are kind of small tamed movies. Yeah. And then he, he goes into a whole dystopian future where New York has fallen and men turned into a prison and pulls it off. But I wonder, did people feel like, oh, we've we've lost them to Hollywood and bigger movies? Or did they feel like, man, this is this is great. This is who I want directing action movies, because that's how I feel. It it seems like this kind of felt like the film where they did arrive. And when I say they, I mean, I mean, John Carpenter, I mean, Deborah Hill. I mean, all of the people that he's been working with all of this time. This is the film that got all of them uh, union credits okay. got them in the union. So uh, this was the first union film that they did. Uh, but basically none of the cast or crew or especially none of the crew, excuse me, was union yet. Um, so Deborah Hill got them all on contract. Then she got the union contract because it's sort of a, you can't be in the union unless you've worked in the union and you can't, you can't work in the, like, you know, it's, it's sort of this, mm-hmm. uh, catch 22 sort of thing. You, you have to have worked on a union picture for 30 days to get your union card, but you can't work on a union picture, you, you know? So, uh, she found a loophole where she could hire them as non-union workers, then do the union contract with the film. And then they would honor that. And so this is a, I mean, think about this, this film is how Dean Cundy, who went on to, you know, shoot a ton of stuff, including Jurassic Park. This is how he becomes union. Like this is, so this really is how all of them arrive, you know, quote unquote, arrive in Hollywood as not just, you know, the little punks who are, who are making these great inventive little genre pictures, but, uh, making, making a big legitimate, uh, action picture. I mean, it's, it's a fairly modest budget at depending on what you read. I've, I've read 6 million and I've read 8 million. I think Deborah Hill in a, uh, in an interview that I was watching mentioned 8 million. So I, I mean, being producer, I'd believe that that's probably about, about where they were, Mm -hmm. but, um, it's much bigger than they, they had done before. It's not, it's not totally huge. You know, it's not star Wars money, but it's pretty substantial. And he, once again, I mean, we've talked about how Carpenter time and time again, puts all of his money up on screen. I I feel like you really feel that here with just the environment that he builds out. One of my, my favorite uh, little pieces of trivia about this movie. um, When, when snake is flying the little glider in and there's that CG rendering of New York, the outline of all the buildings, you know how they did that. I do know how they did that. Yeah, it was it was miniatures that they put like glow tape on and put a yeah. shot under black light and flew a camera, you know, put a camera around it uh, to make it look like computer because that was cheaper back then. Right, right, and and perfectly inventive and and like really like really smart stuff. And I don't, I can't remember. Did you know that James Cameron worked on this? In VFX? No, I'm not surprised, though. It makes sense. Yeah, I mean, most of the VFX were done by Roger Corman's New World Pictures, mm-hmm. um, which I think had only been you know, put in, like, they, they'd only been put together maybe a couple years earlier for, for a Corman film, Battle Beyond the Stars, I think. 
Um, but I mean, at, at the time, James Cameron, he's sort of a young dude. Um, and he, he worked on, I know he worked on some matte paintings, um, like some big glass mm-hmm. matte paintings and mm-hmm. some other, like some, some pretty substantial stuff. I, I can't remember. I want to say he, he worked on that one though. Um, but yeah, this hmm. is, I mean, that, that's another, like, I think James Cameron goes from this to only what a couple years later doing Terminator. Um, it's, it's a sort of a, it's another, I mean, I feel like everything that we've gone into has been a jumping off point for like, oh my gosh, this is <laughs> Nick Castle went on to, went on to direct major pain, the great major pain, <laughs> the great major pain. Uh, but a lot of, a lot of his films seem like jumping off points for people who go on to do even bigger things. And this is, this is really no exception. And, and we haven't said it yet, but this is the, uh, the arrival point really for Kurt Russell and John Carpenter together on the big screen. They, yeah, they had done Elvis before, but that was a made for TV movie. Mm-hmm. And Kurt Russell, I mean, they, the, the studio didn't want Kurt Russell. They had a bunch of people that they kind of wanted before. They wanted Tommy Lee Jones. They wanted Charles Bronson. They even wanted Chuck Norris. Yeah. Well, they were wrong about everything. Kurt Russell is perfect in this. This is the perfect role. Well, and, and he's even said that it's his favorite character he's ever played, which is kind of why Escape from L.A. happened. We'll get to that. Uh, but no, this is I mean, it, that's a part of, I'm glad you bring that up, because before we started doing all this and before I started doing a deeper dive into John Carpenter, when I think John Carpenter, I thought Kurt Russell movies. Mm-hmm. I thought I, I thought Escape from New York, The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, and then mm-hmm. they live as well. That was sort of my 80s Carpenter it was sort of my base Carpenter jumping mm-hmm. off. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's great to see. And, and they seem so simpatico together. I don't know if you uh, – uh, do you have the, the Scream Factory disc of mm-hmm. this? It's mm-hmm. so good. Like it's totally worth picking up the, the steelbook of this. Um, a lot of great special features. There's like three commentary tracks. There's one with Russell and Carpenter that's so good. Oh, I'm going to have to go watch that. I, I'm, I'm definitely interested in this because you can feel – Kurt Russell's passion coming through the screen. Yeah. He is so excited to be playing this role. It's sort of, I mean, he's even said that he needed to play someone who was sort of this, this dark so that he'd go on to play other mm-hmm. characters and, you know, broaden his horizons because he, you know, I think he relates to Snake Plissken so much, uh, but it's not necessarily a dude that you want to be playing, you know, an entire career of either. Right. I, I mean, he, he did everything from, you know, overboard where he's, you know, right. Kind right. of a, a comic hat, but to, to dark snake snake Plissken. Yeah. And, and, and he can do all of that. And it's amazing. The range that Kurt Russell has that I really, really do think he's an underrated actor. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, he's been, I, I thought he was great in hateful eight, even if you know, I didn't care a lot for that that movie. I, I mean, I think he's he seems to be getting a bit of a, a small resurgence lately. Yeah, I thought he did a great job as Ego in uh, Guardians Two. I I love this whole world that he builds up. I love you know it's it's that classic Carpenter minimalism. I mean, he hits the ground running with the story, and and it's sort of honestly the as far as structure, it's sort of a little weird and a little risky because it's sort of action vignettes. Mm-hmm. Um, you never like, other than knowing, like he's trying to get to the president, he's trying to get the president out of there. Uh, you never really know exactly where it's going next. I mean, like when, when the crazies attack early on, you know, he's sort of just figured out that the president is nowhere to be found and he can't track him and he's going to have to 
by other means get there. Uh, the, the scene where the crazies come out and then he ends up in the chock full of nuts. And mm-hmm. I, I love the sort of just unpredictable nature um, of, of that moment. And, and basically, and, and most of the, most of the moments, most of the scenes that, that we get into, like they take left turns that you don't expect. You, you want to know one of the reasons I love this movie. It's ultimately a road movie. Yeah, it, it, it sort that's, of is. That's because- what you're trying to express. Like he's going from place to place. He's meeting new people. Crazy things are happening. He's just, he, it's not a car movie. He's just, you know, roaming around. These people keep coming back up. It is a road movie through and through. And you know how much I love road movies. I do. And, and it definitely has those Western motifs. I mean, Russell is sort of playing Snake as a Clint Eastwood character. You've mm-hmm. got Lee Van Cleef in here. Um, you, you've got some of those, those elements. It's not, I don't think it's a one-to-one Western. Um, but he, he's definitely pulling, uh, pulling little pieces here and there, uh, that, that add to this rich tapestry that he's, he's created. Which is especially interesting considering Assault on Precinct 13 was sort of a Western as well. Right. Um, it, it's something Carpenter was really good at adapting those things that were so good in, into this, uh, but without it being clearly like a Western in New York. Well, I mean, and he does that later with Big Trouble in Little China, which is mm-hmm. a Western in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I keep going back to sort of the the setting of this and that like, I, I just, I love, I love the really, um, the, the texture of the world that he's built. The, I mean, they, they shot this in East St. Louis um, in like a part of town that had burned up, um, you know, several, I think like three or four blocks had burned down. Uh, several years earlier. And so it just, it looked like it hadn't all been renovated and they, they used all of that to their, um, to their effect. And they shoot it all at night with these ultra prime lenses, which they just got their hands on. Hmm. And Dean Cundy does an excellent job using these really uh, great shadows. And, you know, it's a, I think it's a combination of, I, I love the stuff that he did with, with Carpenter they sort of, they mesh really well together. And Cundy's, Cundy's a, an excellent DP, but then Carpenter, you know, he has this, he doesn't like to always do, you know, like, uh, you know, conversations that are mediums back and forth and that sort of, he likes to mm-hmm. give you the environment and he does that throughout this. And it's, it's excellent because you get to see everything going on in, and you get to see just how much they did as far as, kind of dressing up these empty streets with just garbage all over them. It's one of those worlds that feels so lived in that as razor thin as the story is at times, like that mm-hmm. tells you everything you need to know to buy into it. So speaking of buying into it, what, what did you think of the fact that when you watch the movie, I bet of the first 20 minutes, Snake Plissken is on screen for about two. You see a whole lot of other stuff happen before Snake is really, really introduced and given his task and given his... uh. Uh, what what he needs to do from uh, Lee Van Cleef. I love that because I love the introduction of of Snake not being an introduction at all. It's mm-hmm. just sort of this. I mean, and and now in hindsight, we know that Snake Plissken or that's Kurt Russell. Mm-hmm. You know, when he's when he's getting brought in, but he's not. Nothing is said. Um, so it's it's a great like it's a great way to kind of give you your antihero up front and then set all the pieces in place that you need to set up because there's a bit of exposition up up front, but not much. And it's just enough to set the dominoes up to then set him on this road film journey. I, I love it. I think it's I think it's the perfect economical way to get in because I mean, by what, 20 minutes in, we're on the ground. 
and we are in New York and we're spending the rest of our time just uh, running around in the, in the sewers and in, on the streets. And I mean, to, to answer your question, I think it's perfect. I, I wouldn't change a thing about that intro. So I have a question for you. This this is might be kind of out there, or you maybe you watch some commentaries and can shed some light on this. So Snake Plissken used to be military. He was a special forces or whatever. How much do you think this is playing on the same vibe of Vietnam vets that a movie like Rambo would play on a couple of years later? As far as this is like a grizzled, hard, you know, veteran doing his own thing. I think there's definitely some of that in here. I mean, there's because he is, he seems like the type of guy that it seems like in his history, he wasn't always as cynical as he is. Mm -hmm. And you get the idea, you know, when, when he first comes in to talk to Hawk and he gives that classic line, uh, president of what? Um, mm-hmm. that he's sort of, he's to the point where he doesn't care anymore. He is a war hero. He's, as we find out, a very famous celebrity. Uh, in within, you know, at least within, uh, the, the New York City, uh, penitentiary. Mm-hmm. But he's, he doesn't, whatever it is that he saw, whatever valor, you know, he got from the, uh, Leningrad mm-hmm. event, that all doesn't mean anything to him because, uh, he, he sort of lost something there. I don't think this movie could have been made before Vietnam. And you nailed the exact line, the president of what, that that to me is that is a moment in timeline uh, or or line from a moment in time that taps into something uh, latent within the audience. And I, I love it and it's perfect and it sums up his attitude. But I think it is definitely a post Vietnam. The thing that I really like about that is you feel it, but it's not this ham fisted overt striking you over the head with. Hey, we're making a Vietnam metaphor. Oh, mm-hmm. by the way, we're making a Vietnam metaphor. It's it's more saying, okay, I trust the audience to draw a parallel here, mm-hmm. and I'm using that narratively as well because there's power in it. And then we're once again moving the story forward through that. Yeah, there's been speculation on you know what's going to happen with this reboot of Escape from New York. And back when it was Chris Hemsworth who was attached, it was going to be a prequel and all that. Like, I don't want to know anything about how Snake Plissken became Snake Plissken. Like, no, every moment he's on screen is, is golden. And the minimalism that we have about what happened. I love that. He's just got these things in his past. Um, What is it in the first? Is it Kansas city? It's Kansas city. And then you've got Cleveland, and yeah. yeah, it's and and Leningrad, of course. Yeah, he's he's got other, and that's and that's what I really would love to see with the new film if it happens is just another iteration, another thing. Um, it doesn't need to be connected to anything because I feel like you know Snake Plissken, he's a bit of a drifter. He's a bit of a Mad Max sort of character. You don't have to connect it all. It's funny you said that. If if Indiana Jones is the uh, pulp novel on screen, this is almost like a graphic novel on screen to me. Yeah, no, that that's a good point. He fits a lot of those tropes very well. You know, it's I, I think the level of detail that we get about his past, and that just being that it exists and that there are uh, there are dark places in it, is all that you need, all that you need at all. And that's that's what allows him to continue to sort of surprise us as well throughout. Like, we basically know who he is and sort of how he functions, but that's that's all we need to know. This also had to be in an era, you have to remember, New York was 
was the worst place in the it, it, we use Detroit now as like oh it's just a a burned out hole of a city well that was New York at the time this is taxi driver New York this is pre Giuliani Disneyfication of Times Square and all this stuff this was a a rough city even the cabaret theater that they uh, that he runs in the cabbie <laughs> in uh, that is right off Forty Second Street cabbie says which is you know the where all of the porn theaters and prostitution and all of that was going on at the time. Um, so it's, it's very explicitly sort of setting it in the, even when he goes in to the entire prison, he goes to the dirtiest place that there was before it was a prison. Speaking of which, by the way, uh, I want the, the new escape from New York franchise movie to just be the musical that was going on stage that <laughs> Ernest Borgnine was enjoying so very much that we didn't get to see really anything of. So, so that musical, the, or at least that number, everyone's coming to New York. Uh, really great. Nick Castle wrote that. He also, he also invented the cabbie character. I understand because this is, you know, based on a script that Carpenter had from like the early seventies, like 1973 or something brought Castle in to help him co-write it when he decided to revamp it. And those were a couple, well, the, the cabbie character Castle invented, and then the everyone's coming to New York piece. I can't remember what the song was that they actually were using. They couldn't get the rights to it. And so he had to write something to the tempo and this is that's what he came up with. And it's perfect. Oh, it was probably like New York, New York or something like that. I, I don't think it was, but it was, you know, it, yeah, it was it was a show tune sort of thing. But that adds like the everyone's coming to New York song adds texture to sort of the environment. Like, oh, it w- it w- it's so much better than if they had an actual um, a real world pre collapse song. Yeah. It, it, they've been in there long enough that they've written musicals about their new terrible home. And also New York still has the New York spirit. There's going to be performers on 42nd Street. Right. But there's no Yankees anymore. There's no Yankees. No. I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't touch just quickly, at least on there. We do get a pretty difficult moment in that theater scene when he goes into the basement and he sees the girl uh, being roughed yeah. up and he decides not to help her. And... I, I think it works and not in a like, oh, no, he needs to like it works in Snake Plissken is not our hero. Right. You know, he's he is an antihero at best. And even then, he's still a guy who is cynical and out to only save himself because he feels that is the only the only means to uh, to survive. Yeah. And there's the t- there's the ticking clock going and he, he doesn't have time to deal with it. And it's, well, I mean, I'm not I'm not even trying to justify it from a like I because I think that's you know, that's pretty sick. Like it's it's it is terrible that he leaves her there. But it is like it also informs us about Snake Plissken and who he is instantly. He's he's not our good guy who was un un, you know, unjustly thrown into New York. Um, you know, they went and got, he's a, he's a bad dude. He's a criminal. Yeah. And that's, and that's, I mean, time and time again, you find that in Carpenter's films, he's not afraid to go a little dark and to explore something that's not just going to wrap up in a, in something that's, I mean, we, we started off the, the series with the apocalypse trilogy, three films that end in pure destruction. Um, you know, he's, he's not afraid of a, an unhappy ending and he's not afraid of, a character who is not entirely a knight in shining armor. And it does not feel exploitative. Like they put it on screen to get the boob shot. 
Right. It it is for a purpose in the movie, which is uh, I don't have time to do with this. Yeah, it's I mean it 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 is rough to watch and I think that's exactly sort of the the point of it. And and also may play on the Vietnam metaphor even more of seeing some terrible stuff in Vietnam, but you got to go about, you know, he, he's a former soldier, got to do what he's got to do. Yeah, maybe so. Um although not Vietnam, Leningrad. Um Leningrad, yes. Uh, but something else that I wanted to, to talk about here is just all of the great characters that he runs into. You've got Lee Van Cleef as Hawk. Perfect. Like he's, he's one of those really lean carpenter characters that you feel like, you know, even though you don't get a ton of time with him because he just, he nails everything about him just right up front. Um, and then you've got, you got brain played by Harry Dean Stanton. Uh, you've got Adrian Barbeau, uh, coming back for a second Carpenter film at the time, John Carpenter's wife uh, playing Maggie. You've you've got an unforgettable uh, performance by Isaac Hayes as the Duke, and of course, coming back yet again, Donald Pleasance as the President, uh, who is so much fun in this. Um, and I'm I'm leaving out so you know Tom Adkins returns, Jamie Lee Curtis actually returns as the voice of the computer and the the uh, narrator in the beginning. Um, you know, typical Carpenter things of bringing people back here and there carpenter and castle are in the band playing the show tunes carpenters playing a kazoo and a uh, and a guitar um but just a very rich tapestry of characters like we've come to expect from from carpenter um i i love some of my favorite scenes are the scenes between the duke and the president uh yeah the the duke is the duke is just great He's a number one. <laughs> he is. He really, you, you believe that he is a number one. You believe that he would, um, he would run the, the city. And honestly, my only, like one of my only quarrels with the film is like, I'm not sure the Duke would want out. He is the man. He's got basically everything and he's got it all under control. I don't know exactly why he wants to escape. Yeah. I, I, he, he's got plenty of, con- like, why, why do you want to get out in the real world? Also, I, I will say this to, uh, to put, like halogen headlights in your car is is fey, but to hang chandeliers from it that that style. <laughs> the chandelier headlights is just amazing. Yeah, you know, I I was wondering watching this time through. So you've got you've got Harry Dean Stanton's character Brain, um, and then you've got this this uh, the the Duke's car which has chandeliers hanging from it. It's all decked out, and it's also got that sort of glittery paint on it. Um, have you seen Brick? Ryan Johnson's first film. I have seen it. Yes. I really think Ryan Johnson must be referencing this movie with you think? giving a character the name brain and then the pins van, which is all decked out inside with sort of uh, with a lamp and, and all sorts of stuff like that. He's got to be because, because I mean, I also think Looper has some, particularly when um, the guy's hand melts off that has mm-hmm. some pretty carpenter uh, moments as well. It's not a ba- not a bad influence to have. How great is that scene? The the scene at the end on the bridge with the car chase and the cars flying over all the debris and like it's just you know the the thing that I love about this movie is it's it's lean, it's well, uh, it, everything is well built and as far as the world and it's it's got that ticking clock element which a lot of Carpenter films have you, you know what i really liked about that ending scene i didn't know if snake plissken well this time i did but i didn't know if snake plissken, plissken was gonna make it out because everybody else was dying real deaths 
people died in this movie. And but you also don't trust Hauk to keep his word either. So there's mm-hmm. there's that element. And and even when the president stops him coming up the wall, like mm-hmm. it, it seems like he like it, there's he legitimately set the stakes to where it doesn't feel like uh, it doesn't feel like it's definitely going to be a happy ending for Snake Plissken. Well, and and Snake never trusted the government. You know, he never trusted yeah. the man to send him in there. So when they stopped that pulley, it's like, oh, he he legitimately, you know, this could end with a betrayal. There was there was lots of movies, especially in the late seventies, that ended, you know, not happily. And so you really don't know where this is going to go, even yeah. for being a Hollywood movie. It has a few things here and there that that keep it from being like genuinely perfect film for me, but it is it is super close. So I have a I have a question. Uh, Snake Plissken goes into the chock full of nuts, and he talks to that woman, and she gets pulled through the floor. Is that Jamie Lee Curtis? No, that's season Hubley. Is that her name? That that was Kurt Russell's wife at the time. Okay, I, I couldn't tell because she was in so much makeup for a second. I, I thought it was Jamie Lee Curtis, and I couldn't tell. And I looked it up later yeah. and saw Jamie Lee Curtis was in the movie, was credited or not credited, but was on the IMDb. So no, just her voice. Yeah, Kurt Russell's ex-wife and John Carpenter's ex-wife both in this film. Is she his ex-wife because she got pulled through the floor? <laughs> I don't. I don't think. Uh, I don't think that had anything to do with it. Um, before we wrap up here and move on to Escape from L.A., uh, one thing that I do want to talk about is the opening bank robbery and subway station scene uh, that was cut from this film. It's. It was included in like the director's cut version or the extended cut version that was on the UMD PSP release of this. So if, if you have a PlayStation portable, you might be able to watch, watch it included in the film. Otherwise uh, it's in, it's in special features. You can find it on YouTube. It's, it's on that, that scream factory disc as well with commentary. That's where I watched it in pretty low quality too. It looked like it was from a VHS, pretty low quality. Yeah. But that has commentary with Kurt Russell and John Carpenter as well. Kurt Russell had never seen it. So oh, really? as they're watching, yeah, as they're watching through, he's like, yeah, I don't even remember shooting this scene. Like, <laughs> like there's one point where he's like, yeah, I, if, if you hooked me up to a lie detector test, I would say that is not me and I would pass. <laughs> I will say this, uh, didn't enjoy it. Kind of mad. I watched it. I, I didn't hate it. Um, I am very, like very much happy that they cut it you, out. You do not need to see snake Plissken. Um, going back for a friend. Well, not only that, you don't need, you don't need reason for how Snake Plissken, why Snake Plissken was arrested, or you don't, you don't need any of that backstory. It's 10 extra minutes that just slow the movie down. And I'll say this, we found, we formed a connection with Kurt, with uh, Snake Plissken anyway. It wasn't needed to, it was, it clearly was not needed. But the, the thing that was most interesting, I didn't need to see him like, Using a disguise, stealing the money, having things almost go wrong and make Snake Plissken in my head is way cooler than anything you can show me about Snake Plissken. <laughs> like the, the how I don't I can't put into words what happened to him, but he definitely got double crossed. Well, he's also not the type of guy like as as far as like what we see of him in Escape from New York. He's not the type of guy who creates a plan or goes by a plan. What what makes him so good is he is able to survive minute to minute by acting quickly, reacting to a situation and making the best of it and, and getting the best of the people around him all the time. He's mm-hmm. constantly, and, and at, no matter what he has to do, if he has to backstab, he backstabs. If he's got to play dirty, he'll play dirty. Um, mm-hmm. He's, he's not a guy who goes in with a tight plan. He's a guy who is just able to do it through brute 
strength and, and quick wittedness. And, uh, yeah, so I, I don't like, I'm glad they cut it out. It's kind of fun to watch. Like I, I enjoy, you know, the opening panda glide shot that's kind of moving around the bank and the, the little bank robot is fun. Uh, uh, the one thing I will say I enjoyed about it, the bank robot made me think of uh, Bomb 61 or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And and it made me think that, that maybe Dark Star was in the same universe. <laughs> Just because it's a little <laughs> robot going around talking like, time to bank's going to close soon, time to get out, need to not be here. I honestly think, though, had, had the movie started that way, it would have felt too slow it would have felt like giving us an expansion of the world that we don't really need. And so like sort of a false impression of what we're going to get, because so much of it is just about being there in the streets. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to expand any further than, than what we see. So I'm glad it was cut. And and I'm not particular about length of films, but an hour and 40 minutes is what an action movie needs to be. That's, that's pretty much perfect. You don't really ever need more or less. Sometimes you do, but this is the perfect amount of sit down, watch the whole thing, get up. Yeah, it's, no, it is, it is, it is so economically done, which I mean, a lot of times that's, I I feel like I'm applauding Carpenter for that time and time again, but he is so good at that. He is so good at deciding what is needed, what is not trimming the fat and moving on. Also, how, how much do you love the ending? It's so cynical, but it's also, it feels right. It feels right given, because there are no good characters. There are no good guys in this world. It is, it is truly a dystopia. But you do, you do feel that they wronged Snake Plissken, and you do feel like he gets back at him and that it was justified. But I love that he is willing to just say, screw the country, screw this war, screw whatever. I did my part and screw you. Well, president of what? He has no allegiance to anything. Also, I love that Snake still somehow gets out of there. Like he, he screws him over while he's actively still on the military base. Right. But once again, we don't need to see how he gets out of there. We don't need like we, and we believe that he will get out of there. Well, and if a second movie was never made, we wouldn't need to know. We would just know that he's fine with the consequences. You mentioned the second movie. Let's get into talking about escape from LA. You are now entering the deportation center. You have been found guilty of moral crimes against the United States of America and sentenced to permanent expulsion beyond its borders. Any failure to comply with processing instructions will be met with use of force. Take a look at them, Bliskin. Prostitutes, atheists, runaways. We're throwing out the trash. SD Bob Pliskin, Special Forces, two Purple Hearts. Youngest man ever decorated by the president. Rescued a different president in 97. So what happened to you, war hero? You were the best we had. Now you're just like one of them. You had it all, and you turned away from your country. Why? Huh? The whole nation's watching. Every good and decent person who works hard and follows the rules. Be my guest. What do you have to say, Pliska? Call me Snake. Okay, Jake, so Escape from L.A. in 1998, one year after Escape from New York takes place, there's a giant earthquake in L.A. L.A. breaks off, becomes its own island. Uh, The president is then uh, declared president for life. He issues Directive 17, which basically says all subversives are to be deported to Los Angeles forever. So like Manhattan, now the island of L.A. is a super prison And now it's 2013 and the president's daughter has hijacked Air Force three with a black box and flown it into L.A. And the president 
needs that box back. He doesn't care about his daughter, but he needs the box back. So who do they call? Snake Plissken, of course. It's a good thing he keeps getting arrested, or they would be in big trouble. Let's just get into it. That's that's about all the backstory you really need. Oh, also, uh, in the opening credits, Stacy Keach, Steve Buscemi, Peter Fonda, Pam Greer, Bruce Campbell. This is an incredible cast for, you know, a cult genre sort of movie. I knew about some of the, like, I knew about the terrible surfing. What do you mean, terrible? All the CG stuff, and there's a lot of it, looks like stuff from, like, a late 90s computer game cutscene or, like, a present-day asylum film, essentially. Yeah. one One time they go past a mall, and the font on the mall is just, like, Ariel. There's a lot of rough. I mean, it's this is definitely a far cry from all of the practical magic that we have seen in Carpenter films, you know, throughout the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s with with something like uh, In the Mouth of Madness. Look, you sound negative about this. I'm <laughs> so going to go positive. <laughs> no, it's not. I'm gone. I am positive about this. One thing I enjoyed about this is it was. It was a fun ride. He picked a lot of things that were a lot of fun, and they were ridiculous. And I would say it's like an asylum film because you're not far off on that, especially on how it looks. But they are having fun. It is a campy, sometimes fun ride. My, I think my biggest problem with this is it feels like it's still trying to be in the vein of Escape from uh, from New York. But really, I mean, there's a lot of weird, like, I don't understand why Snake Plissken is sort of, like, I understand that he's older, but he's constantly being double-crossed and not seeing it, or he's constantly being, <laughs> I mean, he he's just, we got stupid Snake. I mean, the the poison, uh, first of all, him him allowing himself to get poison and not realizing it, and then, and then the big ending with... Uh, it oh, it's just the common flu, which there's a whole nother problem there, but we can get into that later. The the holograms, whenever he's being told about all of it, and he's like, I'm gonna kill you guys, and they're like, We're holograms, dummy. Ha ha ha. I like that they just loaded that gun with blanks. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so many things where it's like Snake Pliskin would not fall for any of this. The Snake Pliskin I know would not fall for any of this. And I guess it sets up the campiness that we're getting into. But it does feel like it it kind of hurts the character some. Uh, we should also say uh, Kurt Russell's only writing credit. And and boy, did he do a good job. You hate on this movie. You know, I, I will say I watched it a second time in preparation for discussing mm-hmm. here. It went up a whole half of a star from two to two and a half. So out of baby steps, baby out steps of, out, of, out of five on Letterboxd. Oh, that's a lo- OK. OK. Uh, there are things that I found to enjoy and love about it the second time around. Um, but then there's so much new metal. So like, I don't know. I don't know what they, I, I guess I do know what they thought 2013 looked like. They were way off. LA has way more homeless people. Now all of the like worst tropes of that exact time. Um, plus some sugar Ray thrown in. Um, it's, I, I, I am, I am baffled by a lot of this movie. Look, it, it, it is it peak Carpenter? No. But no. did you have fun watching it? I had some fun. I, I mean, I enjoyed Peter Fonda. Um, <laughs> I I think I think Bushimi is sort of wasted here. Um, yeah. I get it. But Bruce Campbell is really wasted. Like that entire 
Surgeon General of uh, Beverly Hills thing. I don't know if he was properly appreciated at that point in time. Like, was it before his true cult status where we all love Bruce Campbell? I mean, it's around the time of the Frisco Kid and uh, Jack of All Trades, I think. Maybe it's a little before that. But either, no, my, my point is not that Bruce Campbell is wasted, although he is. My point is that that entire moment is pointless. Like, it's, I guess it's meant to sort of be like the chock full of nuts thing again, where it's like, oh, we think we're going one way and we go another. But it's, the problem with this is it feels like, he, instead of moving forward, ends up right back where he was before he was abducted. I feel like it is more along the lines of making statements on, like, L.A. Like, uh, all these people like this and that, and, sure. and that's on the on the Botox crowd. And it, it's, it's a really weird way to go about making all these points because never is this movie truly serious. Well, there are a lot of there are a lot of things that feel like either statements that are said to, to Snake that feel like statements that were either said to Kurt Russell or John Carpenter mm-hmm. at that like throughout the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I thought you would have been taller or, or this or that. You know, I, I, it's basically they've replaced I thought you were dead with you, all of these other You should have been taller. Yeah. This is this very it structurally follows the first movie very closely. And that's about all it follows. Like it doesn't it doesn't follow it thematically or with the, with the exception of the very end or in in tone or anything at all, I think. Like I feel like this is a totally different Snake Plissken. He's he's still very cynical, but he's he's sort of a laughing stock in some ways as well. Th- this is I don't want to say so bad it's good, but in a way, it almost it crossed that that line for me with just the full level of camp that it had. And so I ended up thoroughly enjoying it. I know I should have been rolling my eyes when when Snake surfs a tsunami wave and high fives Peter Fonda, <laughs> who's literally just on the island to surf, I think. And then surfs the wave to, to jump onto it, just jump onto the car that Steve Buscemi is driving. But but also, it was everything I wanted to see from that. Like if if it isn't gonna be, because you know sometimes you make a sequel and you miss. You make a sequel yeah. and you try to do what you did before, and times have changed, and you don't need a a post Vietnam jaded soldier. You need something different, and you try to do the same thing, and it doesn't resonate with the audience as well. And this did the same thing, but on like playing it on a completely different instrument. It was the same song on a different instrument. If the if the first one was on like a sad violin, this was a harpsichord. It's also in a different key. It, oh, it's very yeah, and maybe <laughs> yeah. played backwards. Um, it's there's a lot of differences, uh, but I mean, I I guess the the thing that troubles me the most is it just feels like there's there's a lot of moments there's a lot of shots particularly the cg shots that i just feel like a different a younger john carpenter perhaps wouldn't have included them would have mm-hmm. said no we don't need that or we'll find a more inventive way to do that and i don't know if that's a matter of with the i mean they had they had 50 million dollars on this which is um even in today's standards like a solid amount of money um, you know, it's a that's a mid tier film, but you could do much better with that budget today than he did here. I think. Yeah, I, th- I think some of that because I was trying to figure out: did he think like, oh no, this is people are gonna think this looks real, and then he got the result back and was like, well, we spent that money, so now we got a weird one man submarine going through a tunnel for some reason. Yeah, they're they're on the bleeding edge 
of yeah. of all of this technology and he's not working with ILM he's not working with you know he's he's not getting Jurassic Park results I'll tell you when this movie won me over and you're gonna laugh and roll your eyes at <laughs> me it's when that shark came out and tried to bite the submarine as it was going past like Santa Monica Boulevard or some crazy crap like that. The, the shark that, that is on keyframes that aren't even eased. <laughs> yes, because it was very clearly we have new technology. We don't know even what our limitations are. So let's just go all out. What if a shark came? Yes, you got it. it I'm pretty sure it was written by Jordan Peele's character from the Gremlins 2 sketch. If you've ever seen that. Yes, of course. I I mean I would watch the behind the scenes documentary on just the the not knowing what's going on of of everything in the the VFX department on this thing. <laughs> they, they, they somebody had to do it first is what I feel, or or early somebody had to do it early. Yeah, he he yeah. did it early. It didn't work out great, but but did we get a really fun movie out of it? Yeah. The flip of this is we could have got a movie that was trying to be serious and was undercut by the bad CG. This movie sure. never tries to be serious. It is um, Evil Dead 2 to Evil Dead 1. Hmm, interesting. Evil Dead 2 is far superior to Evil Dead 1, though. Yeah, so. I'm not making that claim here. I'm just saying it, it's the same thing, but what if we what if we camped it up? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a bit of a defender of this movie now. I had never seen more than just a few clips on TV and had the general knowledge that it was awful. So I said, this is going to be sad. I'm going to watch uh, who's, someone who's becoming one of my favorite directors and one of my favorite actors just crap on screen for two hours. But it, it was not that. It didn't try to aim high and miss, which can be very bad. It aimed for something really, really campy and hit it is what I think happened. It feels like it aimed for something very idiosyncratic and hit it. <laughs> and I can't believe they gave him $50 million to make it. I can't believe Paramount made this movie. And I, I read Ebert's review, which was which was strangely good. And it said this is like if Independence Day uh, had had a sense of humor. Yeah. Ebert Ebert's relationship with John Carpenter makes zero sense to me. Like he hated other than Halloween. He hated most of his great films and then loved his more ex eccentric, weird stuff. So I don't know. Uh, yeah. It, but the thing that shocked me about that is I said, oh, this came out after Independence Day. Yeah. <laughs> where they, where yeah. That, that movie where they used CG to blow up the White House or miniatures they or used, something. But they used a lot of miniatures as well. Yeah. that No, that was miniature. That's And that's the thing is like it's it should have been a mix it, it at most. It shouldn't have been full-blown CG. That's where things... That's where things went wrong, in my opinion. I think one of the reasons the reaction could have been so bad, it's because people had recently seen, what, Jurassic Park, Independence Day, and then they go and see this, and it does not f feel like it should come after those movies in time. It does It does feel like it should come before The Mummy 2 with The Scorpion King. It does <laughs> feel like uh, that chronologically makes sense, um, which... <laughs> is also terrible, terrible CG. But I mean, here's, here's the thing. Like I get your defense of it as it's more camp and it's having fun and all of that. Um, that's, that's fine. I do think, you know, we were talking about how lean uh, the original is and also how, you know, cutting out that first 10 minutes made a lot of sense. I feel like he could have cut out the first 10 minutes of this or condensed some of that um, mm -hmm. in the same way. And it would have like, it takes an awful long time for Snake Plissken to get into LA. There's a lot more setup that we get that we don't really, I mean, there's a lot of the stuff between Plissken and, and Stacy Keach's character um, that is just, 
you know, going over the same stuff that we've seen. We do the same, you know, James Bond sort of gear up thing again, which I get you need, but it just doesn't like, it doesn't do a whole lot. It feels kind of flat. It feels like we just need to get down on the ground and, and hit the ground running. And then the other thing is he's only got 10 hours this time. Instead of 24, he's got 10, which seems like a great idea, but it just never, I never really feel the ticking clock in this one. Yeah, it's it's almost like I feel like they gave him 10 hours because they went back and watched the first one or not went back like John Carpenter probably said I gave him 24 hours and it takes him all 24 hours, but he doesn't sleep. But we also don't address any like sleep deprivation. He's just up working the whole time. And that clock goes really fast in the first movie. And it works. Well, no, I'm fine with the 10 hours thing. I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with the way that it's used. It It feels like it's not like somehow 10 hours feels less like consequential than than the 24 as far as like the ticking clock element of got to keep moving got to keep moving got to keep moving mm-hmm. it feels like there's a bit more lingering in this one is what <laughs> i'm saying you get to just hang out with the general surgeon of of i almost said general hospital of beverly hills <laughs> for two minutes and go nowhere and see a guy that kind of looks like uh gary Busey. <laughs> it's no it, i mean it's one of those that it's fine i i honestly don't know if it should have been made um there are elements to like but it's also it's also very much a sign of the decline of the greatness that is john carpenter at least momentarily yeah look i'm not i'm not claiming it's a 10 or anything like that i just i was happier with it as a carpenter fan seeing it now Parts of it felt like a Carpenter movie and parts of it just felt like an asylum movie. Well, yeah. And parts that feel like a Carpenter movie. Like I love, I love the, uh, what do you say? We play a little Bangkok rules. Perfect. <laughs> yes. Snake Plissken moment. Yes. Sort of undercut by how non snake Plissken he's been through most of it. But then you've got the, like, I get that the basketball shootout thing is supposed to be sort of like the wrestling match. And I get mm-hmm. that John Carpenter loves basketball. And even, I mean, I'm impressed that Kurt Russell made all those shots himself. He yeah, practiced and practiced and practiced and made all those shots himself. It's still super silly. What what I liked about it is we're following Snake Plissken. Last time he had to fight a giant man with a with a with a nail bat, and this time he has to. He's like getting winded after four sprints. Like, yeah, we probably all would, but it was just such like a strange human thing. For for what is a superhuman snake Plissken. I loved it. Ah, uh, we're just. I guess we're just approaching this one from different vantage points. It's yeah, uh, you're approaching it because you wanted to see a good movie. <laughs> I wanted. I I just really want to see more snake Plissken. I mean, and, and I guess maybe that's also part of it. Is in my mind because I'd gone so long not having seen it. Mm-hmm. In my mind, you could have infinite snake Plissken stories, mm-hmm. but with Escape from L.A., it kind of feels like you can't. It kind of feels like. No, Snake Plissken has gotten kind of old and kind of fat, and somehow he was still wearing the same getup uh, that that he was in Escape from New York. But maybe he had some had it let out a little bit. Oh, okay. One, I didn't think Kurt Russell looked a day older in the second one. He definitely looks a day old. Like he doesn't look bad. Like he looks he looks appropriate for his age. Number two, he, he he found a guy he found a guy to touch up that tattoo. Let's not let like act like he let himself go. He did. That's true. Tattoo looks way better. <laughs> Number three, the worst moment of this movie, hands down, is where they take him out of his retro uh, outfit. He looks so twentieth century. It's so it's so bad, and it's and it's really fun. I really loved how bad he looked 
just because he's just in this black leather pre-matrix. Like, this is cool. I can't believe they didn't put him in a do-rag, honestly. <laughs> they had other people in a do-rag. I think that might have been Kurt Russell that said, no, I'm not wearing a do-rag. If they were like, hey, you got to wear this do-rag because it uh, it blocks heat sensitivity. And uh, they, I mean, you would, you'd be like, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense with where this thing's going. It did look like. Snake Plissken was wearing the exact first sketch of an outfit that a costume designer made. It's yeah. like, what if he was in all leather? And everybody's like, yeah, sure. Okay, so I I bring up the idea that Plissken is sort of a, a little ruined for me with this, just to to bring up a, a game that I teased on the last episode of The Carpenter Shop that I want to play. Uh, this was sort of kicked off by an email we got uh, actually a long time ago to the War Starts at Midnight um, show. And I'd been holding on to it for the right time. Then we started doing the carpenter shop and I was like, oh, I know when the right time is for this. So this is an email from Chase in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it goes like this movie idea next in the escape from franchise with Kurt Russell escape from the moon. After sending the world into darkness at the end of Escape from L.A., Snake Plissken attempts to live a life of peace and solitude, but gets wrapped up into another nefarious government plot for world domination and winds up on their moon base, which existed when he sent the EMP blast across the globe, and thus it's the only location unaffected. Also, Tijuana. So his his premise is basically like after escape from L.A., uh, now he's now he has to escape from this this moon base. Also, Tijuana is an option because apparently it didn't get blasted or it built itself back up. I don't know. Um, so th- that's that's sort of the jumping off point. What I what I want to know from you is if you could make another film that fits anywhere into chron- chronology post escape from New York. I don't want to know anything more about his backstory. Um where, where would you have him escape from? Where do you want to see Snake Plissken? And give me give me location, context, anything you want. Okay, uh, this is easy. Escape from hell. So uh, in the post-EMP um, world, the um, extremely uh, Christian president manages to like get the country put back together, and they open a gateway to hell, and that's where they throw all the prisoners now, is they just get sent straight to hell. And and Snake Plissken has to go into hell because they brought the president in there or something like that. It, it's not really important, but he has to go into hell, and then he sees all these people who have got thrown into hell forever, including lots of people who maybe he killed or has double-crossed them in the past. I'm on for this. I'll I'll watch this one. It's kind of a Ghostbusters in hell thing. How campy does this one get? It can go go anywhere. It can go anywhere from zero to ten. And and is Kurt Russell in this one? Oh, yeah. No, no. It's Kurt Russell right now. Okay. Maybe he shaves the big beard. Maybe he shaves the big beard. Actually, I would be be okay with Kurt Russell right now with the beard as Snake Plissken following the Plissken from L.A. I would actually be okay with that Mm -hmm. in your in your scenario. Also, I love the idea that the whole world collapses, but but Snake is still running schemes. Oh, sure, he always will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe not, maybe not fat, stupid Snake, but the Snake I know would. Uh, my escape from is well, it was originally Escape from Tucson, and then I realized that if I'm going to do Escape from Tucson, why don't I do Escape from Benson, Arizona? I like where this is going. So I don't have a full blown sort of story like you do. I don't know what all of the, I don't know why he ends up in Benson, Arizona, what gets him there. What I do know is I want to see Snake Plissken in a Western, in a full blown Western sort of setting. 
um, using Western tropes more directly uh, and and combining them with what we know about Pliskin as sort of I mean he would be the ultimate black hat antihero in this scenario um, and I think there's a lot to play with I would play it straighter than the camp of L.A. Uh, but other than that I think there's a lot open to interpretation and open to play I think it would be a lot of fun so do you think this would end up playing playing out where he he still has to go in somewhere. And uh, and retrieve something and get it out with a ticking clock and everything like that. Maybe I honestly I would be open with it not being that rigid of the original structure. I would be fine with it having its own mechanics. Is this just you saying how much you love Back to the Future Three? No, 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 no. It's not that at all. I do, I do like the idea of it taking place after the EMP. Which then gives us some more reason why it can be like a traditional Western reason why it's more like a Western. Yeah, exactly. Because mm-hmm. I like I I like the like, you know, like Mad Max. I love the way that the, the Mad Max films continue to deteriorate. Like each time you're like, well, it can't get much worse than this. And it does. I like the idea of Pliskin living in a world that continues to deteriorate around him because he is the perfect sort of cockroach character to continue to survive that. Um, and so, I mean, maybe you fudge it a little bit where the things from the end of L.A. happen, but maybe we we don't have to get into Hershey and all of those. And then Jose. Did you not like Cuervo. Hershey? No, Hershey's Hershey's all right. Hershey, I don't have problems with other than she's not a fully like she seems a little too much like something we'd seen in Escape from New York. Um, no, kind of a, well, I mean, kind of, she's kind of a mesh between brain and, um, and the Duke. I like Pam Greer in the role. I just think like that character, he could have done more with the character. That's Mm -hmm. my issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's more like you can pick and choose what you want to pull from New York. Uh, but I would play it straighter and then, and ultimately it's, it's probably a little bit darker too in the dystopia. Um, but that's where, and then, and then you still get the because, you know, he likes Carpenter loves his his little nuggets and tie ins. You know, you've got we didn't we didn't talk about this, but you've got the character of Romero, you've got the character of Cronenberg in Escape from New York. Um, so Benson, Arizona, would be a nice nod to uh, where John Carpenter first began. Uh, so yeah, I'd totally watch this one. Look, I, I will watch it too because Snake Plissken's in it, and it doesn't have to be just a serious movie or just a camp movie. Uh, he's a versatile character that can exist in any environment and also on the basketball court. So, Jake, it is time for Score the Score, and we don't have one score but two scores that we need to score. And how do we score the score, Jake? Oh, we score the score out of a score, which everybody knows a score is 20. So let's start with Escape from New York. It's uh, It's got you know that very 80s, very like John Carpenter, I mean, emblematic of John Carpenter theme song. Um, I mean, it feels like it feels like a great Super Nintendo theme song to me. I I thought the same thing. Very 8-bit. Yeah, in the best ways. In the Mm -hmm. best ways. Um, And then you've got, as far as like score, sort of underscore stuff, you've got a lot of that ticking clock. And a really nice cowbell as well. 
Um, can it does does the score also include the I, I would call it the Duke theme, that that funky kind of bass theme that uh, Isaac Hayes gets? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where I mean this, and and I I'd even be willing to I mean I know I know this isn't John Carpenter's element exactly, but the uh, even even the song and dance little number that you've got in the in the theater, because um, I I believe that ended up on the soundtrack okay uh, as well. Uh, so where where do you land on this one? It's I. I'm just gonna guess it's got to be high, right? Yeah, it's high. This is this is as good. This is almost just uncut Carpenter, like the the, <laughs> the hardcore stuff. I, I like it. It's good. It hits every single button I want to hit and more from it. I still don't think it's that perfect score out of a score, but I I am gonna give it an eighteen. Eighteen oh, out of a score. Oh boy, we're simpatico. I'm going eighteen as well. Oh really? It, it's got to be. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, it's it's just it's so high up there. It's so like, and it. And it's, I mean, you don't have a lot that is um, as strong as the theme is, as far as like melody and that that sort of thing. But it's it's like his best scores, where it just it really, I mean, so much relies on him setting up the ticking clock with the underscore that that drives so much, and he does it perfectly. And and so the combination of those and that and that little everyone's coming to New York number, all of that, it's great. It's damn near perfect. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really good. It, it, the thing keeping it from being a twenty or uh, a nineteen is it's just that it's not it's not Halloween. Yeah, I mean, well, let's be honest. It, it's I can't I can't just hum it and it's iconic and all that, but it does everything it's supposed to do and more. Uh, so this brings us to Escape from L.A which was composed by John Carpenter and Shirley Walker this time. Uh, Walker's done a lot of uh, a lot of work on a lot of stuff, um, most notably for me, Batman the Animated Series. Um, worked on a bunch of movies. Worked on Ghoulies, all sorts of stuff. I don't like this score. It's a too, it's a too much new, crunchy, new metal guitar for me. There's some of that, but there's also just like really predictable, like just orchestral stuff or like it feels very stock. A mm-hmm. lot of it feels very stock. Yeah. Or phoned in at best. It's just like, eh, there's nothing that sticks out to me is worth a damn. Even, I mean, and then the, that white zombie song and over the credits, the one not very <laughs> yeah. good. Um, no. it's, it's sort of, I mean, even in a, it's not good in a campy value or any, like, it's just, no, I don't know why it's there. It's not even something I enjoy liking it campy. Well, but I don't think it is campy. I think, I think it's taking itself very seriously. I, I know I'm saying like, but it's not even something where I can go like, it's too much of it for me to say like, oh, this is what they liked back then. Yeah. It doesn't even have any value then. It's just like, oh, it is bad. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to go with two. Oh, two? Two. I was, I was still going to give it like a nine. Oh no! I'm, I'm because going of to, the, rep, the rep, well, well. Let me ask this: Does it include um, the the clip of "I Love L.A." from Randy Newman? No. Oh, it's it seven. <laughs> no, seven. It only had two. Two of the points was just from that. I love L.A. It, that that was a. Uh, I really laughed at that. By the way, when it's just a really terrible burnout husk of a city, and that's still playing on the map of the stars. Yeah, no, I I don't like. There's nothing that I enjoy about it. I'm giving it two only because like scoring it out of twenty. So I'm thinking, okay, if I was scoring it out of ten, what would I 
give it, I would probably give it a one. So um, let me ask this. I know, I know this isn't quite score, but it is some audio work. Did you notice that one scene where snake and the woman who had just escaped from, um, that the, the doctor, uh, the the surgeon, they're like walking down a long alleyway and they're way in the back and they're clearly not talking. And there's this voiceover that's like, where are we going to go now? We're going to go to Cuervo's house. Oh, well, that's good. I'm glad you're going to take me there. And then they get closer and they start talking for real in the scene. Yeah. They just use like the head of the shot and voice it over to get where they need it to go. Really sloppy work from Carpenter. <laughs> it's not not very good. So what does that involve? Since it's sound stuff, does that involve in the score at all? No, no, like, no. That's... That, that, that's I, I know. Unrelated. I just want to make sure I didn't need to lower this again. That was okay. You can oh. if you want. If you want, if you want to include the Sugar Ray song to lower it, you can. Oh no, Sugar Ray song puts it back up. Okay. You, you know I love Sugar Ray, which <laughs> is right. probably why I love this movie. It, they're not that much different. Moving on uh, to Clash and the Carpenter. This is this is the most exciting segment of the entire show for me because. Well, let's just get down to it. The, each each episode, we put one badass from John Carpenter film against the badass from the film that we are discussing. And so we started out with the thing. So we started out with R.J. McCready as the reigning champion because he had to be. He defeated people in Prince of Darkness and in the Mouth of Madness and Dark Star. He was ultimately defeated by the shape in Halloween. Uh, the shape then defeated by Christine, Christine defeated by the gang in assault on precinct 13 and the gang in assault on precinct 13 defeated by the foggy sword wielding sailor lepers in the fog. So we've had a lot of turnaround since RJ McCready lost his crown. So we've got Blake and his leper gang against snake Pliskin. So snake Pliskin wins. Yep. All right. So what's next? Um, I mean, we could do Snake Plissken against Snake Plissken. We know how that's going. Um, do you want me to? Do you want me to explain how he beats the foggy, lep- fog, foggy, uh, sword wielding sailor lepers? Please do. He surfs a tsunami wave. I mean, I don't know any other way. <laughs> any other way to say? I, I did figure out how he does it. Oh, oh, how he figures out that six have to die, and so he tricks six into dying, <laughs> and then he just escapes. As he always does. He just kills six. He helps them, and then they, they go away. Yeah, no, he double crosses, and then, yeah, he's he's smart enough to get there. That's that's the conclusion that I, I came to. Uh, either way, Snake Plissken, he's going to get out of it. He's going to figure out a way, mm-hmm. um, because that's what he does. He's a survivor. So Snake Plissken, our new reigning champion, I imagine will be around for a while. We'll see what happens. Uh, we could come up to a Kurt Russell on Kurt Russell. Uh, probably soon. Yeah, we've we've got Starman might be next, right? Yeah, so that'll be that'll be Russell on Bridges. But then if he defeats Bridges, I think uh, Big Trouble in Little China is the next thing. Uh, I think there's a whole book about that. <laughs> there is. There is an entire comic book which you should read. Although they sort of team up, it's a it's a whole buddy cop thing. Um, I recommended it a, a few episodes back. Uh, but yeah, so we'll, we'll see, we'll see how long snake stays, it stays in the rain. Um, but I imagine it'll be, he's not gonna, he's not gonna be flopping and turning around unless, I mean, neither of us has seen Starman. So maybe we're surprised by Jeff Bridges. I don't know. We'll see what happens. So is it time for the big question now? It is time for the big question, Jake, the two big questions, because we got two movies. It's time for the Carpenter Canon is let's start with escape from New York, escape from New York. Is it a Carpenter classic? Carpenter classic. Okay. We don't need to go further down this list. You're going to have to give more options for the next one, I think. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and give us the options. because oh, we're gonna, we're go, gonna... go for it. That's fine. Yeah, sure. 
a deep dive, which means, you know, it's not a classic Carpenter film, but it is worth seeing, especially if you are into Carpenter or just for Johnny's mommy, which means that really, why was this movie made if, if he's not showing it just to his mother, who's going to say, oh, well, that's, that's sweet son. Um, it's, it shouldn't be seen. Uh, so you say Carpenter classic. I say Carpenter classic as well. Of course, the world says Carpenter classic. So escape from LA Carpenter classic deep dive or just for Johnny's mommy. You want to go first or me? Um, I'll go first because I think I'm less, I, I I'm going just for Johnny's mommy. You think it's that bad? It's not that it is irredeemable. It is that it does not need to exist. And it directly kind of destroys a character that I love. And I, it, I'm not saying that it ruins escape from New York for me, but it does things with that character that I, I don't like, I kind of wish hadn't happened. Uh, all right. I am going to go deep dive, but it it is as, it is as deep down as the shark was in that one man submarine. If you're, if you're not in a nuclear one man submarine, I enjoyed it, but that is the definition of a deep dive. If you are a Carpenter fan, you you, you need to see it. It's fun. It's required, not required viewing for everybody, but required viewing for Carpenter fans. You got to see it. No, I can't put it. I can't put it with the other stuff that I've put in deep dive. Like that's a, I am, you can see it. You can see it if you want to see it. I don't think as a Carpenter fan, you have to see this movie. Um, which, and I know, I know, honestly, I think he would, he would find that as a little offensive because he said in interviews that he actually thinks that the, that escape from LA is a richer, uh, film that's saying more. And I, I get that. He goes to a lot of locations with a lot of different groups and each little one he goes to is a little statement on LA where escape from New York is more of a straight action movie that says a little bit, um, I, I don't, I don't care. He's, it, it's still, it's still a deep dive. Well, and, and I think maybe all of the things that he's trying to say is the reason, one of the reasons why it doesn't work as well. You know, talking about had the Vietnam metaphors and how light that is in escape from New York and how over the top the, I can't remember if he said Pat Roberts or I think Kurt Russell is the one who made, who, who came up with the president character. He was, you know, kind of formed after one of those television preachers. Um, it, it, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of stuff. There's no nuance to a lot of this. Um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm going for the first time ever just for Johnny's mommy. I don't think, I don't think you shouldn't see it, but I don't think it's required viewing for a John Carpenter fan either. It's, it's one of the, it's extra credit on the syllabus. Yeah. I, I don't know what I'll ever put under just for Johnny's mommy. Uh, the ward, but, but, the ward could be. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say Ghost of Mars. No, I don't. I, I, I'm. I haven't seen it, but I have. The other one that I'm worried about is uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. We got, we, we got, a, we got a long way to go. What's going to be rough is when we got all the best carpenters behind us. But you never know what could turn into another in the Mouth of Madness. That's true, but it's. It also feels painful that we got in the Mouth of Madness out of the way so early. Like that would have been an amazing gym to run into late in the game. Um, but alas,
So Chris, it's it's time for your beer pairing, and, and, and I don't know how to pitch this. Are you doing it just for, for the one film or for the double feature? I'm doing it for Snake Plissken, the Snake Plissken I know and love. <laughs> Uh, this beer is the Dream Crusher Double IPA by Deep Ellum Brewing Company in Dallas, Texas, keeping with my Texas brewery theme. Thank you, Jake. So first of all, for the kitschy tie-in, uh, it just feels like Dream Crusher Double IPA is the perfect name of a beer to go along with Snake Plissken because he is actively trying to tear the world apart. Uh, and so that that feels fitting. But also this beer just – it. it sort of feels like a snake pliskin of beers in uh in its profile. I mean it's it's very abrasive. I mean this is coming in at 120 IBU and 9.5% ABV, so very heavy on both of those. Um and it's it's brewed with uh with rye and so it's got a bit of that rye bite to it in addition to the booziness. Uh the the hops here are very citrusy and piney um and up front, like it's, it's one of those that it's not undrinkable. It's not just like abrasively hitting you with nothing but bitter, but it is there. It is present. It's balanced out a bit with, uh, with some malt as well, which is really nice. So yeah, it's, it's aggressive, but it's sharp and it's extremely satisfying. Just like escape from New York. Uh, just like the, you know, going along with snake Plissken for a little while, even as he is sort of a bad dude. And I can't believe we didn't even bring up the, the game bad dudes, which basically rips off uh, in the opening rips off uh, this, this movie, but um, it's no dream crusher. Perfect for whatever Pliskin movie you want to, you want to watch be it escape from New York, escape from LA or playing a metal gear, solid game. Um, <laughs> So that's Dream Crusher Double IPA by Deep Ellum Brewing Company. Uh, Check it out. It's delicious. Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. are currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. If you're still a fan of physical media, you can pick up the Scream Factory Steelbook of Escape from New York. Tons of great bonus features like three commentaries, including one with John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. And if you have something to say about the film, hit up our assistant, Henry Swanson, at PorkchopExpress at CarpenterCast.com, and he'll relay the message to us. Or, if email isn't your thing, we would still love to hear from you. Ring that bright red telephone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Hang in there, kid. We'll be right back with some really rad recommendations you won't want to miss. All right, Jake, it is time for really rad recommendations. I'm curious where you're going to go here. You normally have some sort of connection. So are you going to go dark and cool or maybe campy and goofy? You know what one I'm going to go. It's campy and goofy. So this movie also takes place in L.A. And it also 
takes place in the near future. And it also takes place in like a, a, a dystop- dystopian future. Um, and it also is one you maybe don't want to watch, but you should because it's a lot of fun. Or something like that. This is Southland Tales from Richard Kelly. Jake, I, I would just like to formally apologize right here for, for forcing you to watch Southland Tales. It wasn't so much forcing me to watch it. I had a very misguided idea of what it was. I watched it with our friend Phil Lucia, and, and I pitched it when we held up the DVD case. I said, from what I know, this is a musical. Because all <laughs> I had seen was that Justin Timberlake, all these things that I've done seen... Right. But it was also, I mean, at the time when Richard Kelly was describing it, he was like, it's this dystopian musical sci-fi, this, that, the other, like throwing the kitchen sink out, which should have been the first sign that this is a bad idea. Hey, well, guess what? The movie had everything, including the kitchen sink as well. It had a, oh, so everything I liked about Escape from New York or Escape from L.A. was that it had all these campy things but it did not take itself very seriously. It, it was saying some stuff, but it didn't. It, it wasn't like a statement movie yeah. at its heart. Uh, this one is very clearly insisting upon itself. It's, <laughs> yes, yes it, 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 it's got something to say, baby. It's not entirely sure what it has to say, but it's saying it. Uh, it also has like half the original cast of Mad TV. Yeah, I, I feel like all respectable actors read it and was like, mm, nah. All respectable actors? What about The Rock, Jake? Well, I don't know that he was a respectable actor at the time. The Rock, okay, here's the thing about The Rock. The Rock, long before this, was already making movies that shouldn't be great, great, including another one with his co-star in this movie, Sean William Scott, The Rundown. That movie shouldn't be great, but The Rock's in it, and it is great. Well, this was was like... Apparently, the the giffers on the internet have not uh, found this movie yet, because it would be a gold mine of insanity. I tried to even find some just to show, just to send in like our chat conversation and couldn't really find any. It is, it is a crazy mess. I don't really want to tell you anything more about it, except (laughs) that you're going to hate me if you watch it. So it's sort of like a, like a really bad recommendation (laughs) instead of a really rad recommendation, but you still should find it and watch us. And we might even put you on the show. If you want to talk about it, leave a voicemail and tell me what, so so the other thing I'll say is, best I know, it's available on a DVD that Chris mails you as a sick joke. That's where you can find it to watch it. I, I did find you can you can rent it on like Vudu and YouTube. I don't even know if it's in HD, to be honest, because I couldn't find a Blu-ray of it. You know what, Jake? I own a Blu-ray. I, I got uh, the Blu-ray for, for super cheap. I think I or best offered someone to like five <laughs> bucks, and then I sent you my copy of the DVD. I... I, I, I I don't even know, like on one hand, I want to have it so I can pop it in every now and then. Yeah. It's, it is a so bad it's good, but also it's very bad. It doesn't know if it thinks it's funny or doesn't think it's funny. Or Here's what it is. It's the film on like as it is, is just bad. Like it is bad attempt to be super serious and have some sort of post 9-11 political statement that goes all sorts of places and and never really comes to mesh on anything. Um, What is good about it is I have had so many incredible conversations with people who I have tricked into watching this movie (laughs) because there's just so many elements of just like, I don't understand what was going on here or, you know, like it's, it is a 
it is a crazy movie. It is, it is more fun in the like discussion you're going to have than perhaps the experience you're going to have watching it. I'll say this. So you can go, you could like go on YouTube and see the, the best home runs that anybody ever hit or whatever. And if you just go in and watch stuff, you're like go to a baseball game, you're going to see singles and doubles, but you rarely see someone take a, a swing so big that they end their own career. Just such a giant miss that they hit themselves with the baseball bat and both legs fall off and they never play the game again. <laughs> and I like that he's he's he is reaching back and taking the biggest swing that he could. And it's awful. It's terrible. It, it doesn't even come close to hitting the ball. But you got to like that that there's somebody out there trying. And I would rather watch this 10 more times and watch another just kind of Oscar grabby, uninspired, box checking movie. It is this, it is baffling. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing that this was allowed to exist, that anyone threw any amount of money at this movie. I'm going to stop talking in case we ever choose to review it on here, but please just just pop popcorn and get a friend over so you can verify that some other human on the planet is seeing the things you're seeing and and watch Southland Tales. Yeah, probably better experienced uh not solo but but with a group. Yeah, oh, for sure. And there is a drinking game if you want to approach it that way, but it may kill you. <laughs> it is called the F Betsy Ross challenge in which you drink every time you see an American flag. I I would just like to say you drink every time you see something pretentious, but you would also die. Yeah. It it is who it is like a film student's film and the professor never checked in on the script. <laughs> It's it's rough. What, so what do you, what do you got, Chris? I have a actually a, a film by a fairly pretentious director as well, um, but one who I you know I I'm not always simpatico with, but I I like quite a few of his his films. There's also stuff that I just I don't I don't know. He gets he gets off in some weird tangents. It's uh, Jean Luc Godard, and it is his film Alphaville from 1965. So this film stars Eddie Constantine, who is an American expat who moved to uh, Paris and then became famous playing this detective, this sort of two bit B movie detective named uh, Lemmy Caution. And he is playing Lemmy Caution in this movie. This is like. I want to say like his 10th or dozenth time playing the character. But this time, because Jean-Luc Godard wrote and by wrote, I'm saying in quotes, because I think he had like an outline that he didn't even, that he used to like get financing, but didn't even go by that and just sort of made it up as he went. And he made this dystopian future noir with this Lemmy Caution detective character. Uh, it's set on this planet called Alphaville, which is controlled by the supercomputer known as Alpha 60. And it has a lot of, um, a lot of elements of, you know, like sort of an Orwellian future or that sort of like, uh, basically the entire planet is controlled by logic. And so everyone on the planet must operate logically and their sort of education is controlled by, by the supercomputer and, um, and all this Lemmy caution is sent to the planet to find someone from the, I believe they're called the outer countries, um, who was a scientist that actually invented this alpha 60, uh, and he was exiled from the outer countries and then came to, for his invention came here. Now he's sort of a God among men controlling this, the supercomputer. 
Um, so Limmy's on the hunt looking for him, also looking for another detective who went looking for him who's gone missing. So it has a lot of, you know, noir elements to it. And it's honestly, I'm surprised at how straight noir it is from time to time. It's incredibly violent, I think, for a uh, Godard film. Is, is it in black and white? Is it in it's color? it's in black and white, four by three. Um, probably the thing that honestly I love the most about it is the entire thing. So it's this is set in a dystopian future on another planet that is controlled by a supercomputer. The entire thing is shot on the streets of Paris at night. Um, he uses, but he uses these, you know, modernist buildings of glass and concrete and steel to kind of as, as his setting for this, uh, this future city. And so it kind of works because it doesn't feel like Paris. It doesn't feel like the Paris that we know with the shade of night and with, uh, with the structures that, that he's using. It, it, it's a very interesting, uh, use of just the elements around him. And it feels, obviously it feels very sixties in some ways, some of the technology and that sort of thing. Um, but I really bought into it. I, I love, uh, love that element of it. Uh, Anna Karina, his, uh, his muse is also in this, um, has, has a nice little part. Um, it's, you know, it, it feels, you know, you, you mentioned that Southland Tales feels a lot like a, a college student's film. This does as well at times. Like it has some places that feel a little wild and crazy and perhaps could have been trimmed down or changed up a little bit, made more coherent, but that's sort of, that's what you get when you get into Godard. And that's also, that's the double-edged sword of Godard. I think like sometimes he just gets so far out up his own ass that, um, I don't particularly care for it. Like, uh, but I do enjoy that he experiments and I think the experiment here works for the most part. It's, it's pretty interesting and it's pretty beautiful. And there's, there's a shot early on. There's about a four minute shot that, um, is really breathtaking, unbroken, uh, shot of, of Lemmy caution coming into his hotel when he gets into Alphaville and riding an elevator up and going to his room. And I literally could not figure, figure out how the camera went up the elevator with him until like an hour later when you see him go down. It was, it was legitimately like I was scratching my head. Like, how did they pull this off? So, so what, what you're saying is they did not use the, the, the CG that John Carpenter used. They, they didn't, but it legitimately initially not understanding how it happened. It felt like a movie cam. Um, if you know what that, you know, that's the, mm-hmm. the gimbal that is around now. It felt like that sort of shot where someone must have had to pass it off and, and all of this. It, it turned out to be much simpler than that, but just the way that it, it all happens, it's, it's beautiful. And it's, it, it really, it took my breath away. I could not figure it out for, for the longest time. Um, but yeah, that's, that's Alphaville. Um, it is available streaming on Filmstruck right now. It's also, you can rent it at most places, Vudu, iTunes, etc. Uh, definitely worth a watch and, and, uh, more than, more than a couple connections to, uh, Escape from New York. So well, you got that well, too. I, I, it sounds interesting. You have me intrigued. Does, let me caution, ride a tsunami wave on a surfboard while, while high-fiving anyone? Is that, that's that's actually escape from Omegaville. You know, I'm I'm game for that. That's that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> he actually did make another Lemmy Caution movie uh, with Eddie Constantine in the 90s, I think. 
So like 30, 30 plus years later. <laughs> so, and, and it has new metal, right? <laughs> and it has new metal, right? Perfect. Right. <laughs> All right. And that's a wrap for another episode of The Carpenter Shop. You can find show notes, archives, and a complete list of where to watch each film in the series at carpentercast.com. And check out our mothership podcast at warstartsatmidnight.com. You can say hello to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, tell your friends, tell your casual acquaintances, tell that cute person at the gym who's always listening to podcasts, or rate and subscribe to The Carpenter Shop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the cult of Carpenter, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and send our assistant, Henry Swanson, a great big heaping pile of anonymous internet vitriol at porkchopexpress at carpentercast.com. Or if you're a narcissist who simply loves the sound of your own voice, leave us a voicemail and we just might play it on a future episode. Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The Carpenter Shop theme song was produced by Philip K. Dickey and Dragon in 3. Find them at dragonin3.com. And shout out to Escondido for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at thebandescondido.com. We'll be back next month with a review of John Carpenter's sci-fi romance from 1984 starring Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen, Starman. Look for it now at your public library or rent it from any number of impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. And don't forget, you can catch us in another fortnight on War Starts at Midnight when we discuss Being There, directed by Hal Ashby and starring a very subtle Peter Sellers. Thanks for listening, folks. You, I'm going to Hollywood.